Today on Something You Should Know, when you ask people what their favorite number is, what number comes up most and why? I'll explain that. Then, what are you afraid of? Are your fears a permanent part of who you are? My fear of heights felt like it was a, a built-in part of me as much as my spine. And it's different now. It's not gone, but it's, it's different. And I think it's worth keeping in mind that this stuff can feel permanent, and it isn't permanent. Then, why are there phantom traffic jams, and how can you stop them? And there are a lot of things you do that affect how you communicate and how influential you are, like the speed at which you speak. Our brain believes that when people say things quickly, we believe that what is being said is of less value because the person wants to hurry past it. It devalues what you're saying. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often-once-in-a-while-try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now. And support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey there. Welcome to Something You Should Know. It has come to my attention that some people who listen to this podcast or or any podcast on an iPhone have been having problems ever since they've updated their iOS operating system to 14.5 or 14.6. Apple is aware of the problem. People are reporting uh, missing episodes, old episodes showing up. People can't find shows. If you are having problems with your iPhone accessing podcasts, I'd love to hear about the problems you're having, and you can email me at mike at somethingyoushouldknow.net. And if you are having problems, there are plenty of other apps you can download that will play podcasts for you. Uh, Apple, again, is working on the problem, and, and hopefully we'll have it fixed soon. First up today, I want to talk about favorite numbers or lucky numbers. You probably have one. And if you ask people what is their favorite number, obviously you're going to get a lot of answers. But if you ask enough people, one number does seem to emerge. Math blogger and author Alex Bellos, who's been a guest on this podcast, he asked 44,000 people what their favorite number was. And it started to become clear that number seven leads the list of favorite numbers. 
It turns out that humans have been fascinated by the number seven for centuries. As far back as the earliest writings on Babylonian clay tablets, there's lots of talk of the number seven. And of course, there are seven dwarfs, seven sins, seven seas. We like seven. But why do we like seven? What's so special about it? Well, Alex believes it's because it's kind of an oddball number. In other words, numbers that end in zero or five, like like 10 or 20 or 100, they sound more like estimations. And nobody wants their favorite number to sound like an average estimate. (laughs) So seven, seven is solid. It's a solid oddball number, and that's why people like it. The second favorite number after seven is three, and after that is eight, which is lucky in Chinese. Number 13 actually made the top 10 of favorite numbers, and the number one came in 22nd. And that is something you should know. What scares you? What are you afraid of? Spiders? The dark? Clowns? Heights? Death? Public speaking? Uh, There are a lot of things to be afraid of. Some fears are easy to handle. If you're afraid of heights, you just avoid high places and the problem goes away. But other fears can really get in the way of life. And then there's that feeling of fear. You felt it. What is it? And how do you control it? Here to discuss the fascinating topic of human fear is Eva Holland. She is a writer who's had to deal with her own fears, so she decided to really explore the science of fear. Where do fears come from? What purpose do they serve? And how do you cope with them? She's the author of a book called Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. Hey, Eva, welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So what got you interested in this? Why did you decide to look at the topic of human fear? It came out of personal experiences for me, really, dealing with a fear of heights and then sort of an acquired fear of winter driving after a couple car accidents. There were all these pieces of my life that I wanted to understand and it seemed to me the way to do that was to to try to figure out what was happening in my brain and my body when I felt afraid. And so do you consider yourself a fearful person? I do, yeah, uh, which doesn't always fit kind of my persona in my writing. I write a lot about outdoor adventure and extreme sports, but I, but I, I do, or I should say I guess I did consider myself a fearful person before I started working on this book. And so when you look at the science of fear, I mean, wh- what is fear? What, what, what it's, is it, I guess it's an emotion, right? It is an emotion, but it's also a physical process, a physical reaction, which was interesting for me to learn about. The best definition I found in my research was from a 19th century psychologist who said, fear is the anticipation of pain. And in in scientific terms, what that means is that it's a response to perceived threat. And it's our body trying to prepare to either, you know, the classic phrase is, is fight or flight. Scientists now sometimes say fight, flight, or freeze. But it's our body preparing us to respond to the threat. And so that's why we get you know, the racing heart and the goosebumps and the, you know, dilated pupils, potentially all these physical symptoms of our body gearing up to say, let's deal with this. We're afraid. Let's, let's figure it out. Well, I like that, that definition you gave a moment ago, that fear is the anticipation of pain. And it does seem that, you know, some people just are more fearful and consequently very cautious than others. There's a spectrum and some people seem to live life without a care in the world. They're afraid of nothing. And other people seem afraid of a lot of things. And 
I'm wondering what determines where you fall on that spectrum. Most of us are somewhere, you know, in the middle. Is it experiences we have or is it just part of who we are and our personality? What determines where people fall on that scale? Hmm, interesting question. Yeah, I think it's a mix. My understanding from the research is that there's a certain amount of, of nature involved in terms of whether we're more uh, inherently fearful or, or cautious or anxious. The phrase some psychologists use is inhibited, inhibited personalities. And then there's also a piece that's based on our experiences. If, if we've experienced trauma, if we've sort of acquired phobias. So it, it really is a mixture and it, and it is a spectrum. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is how some people are very afraid of some things that you might not be afraid of and not afraid of things that scare the crap out of you. And it's, it seems so almost random that, you know, like I, I don't like roller coasters, but, but I, I like other adventurous things, but I hate roller coasters. I, they scare me to death. I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I guess I sort of know why, but it's interesting how it just seems to be like throwing darts at a dartboard. Oh, I'm going to be afraid of that. Yeah, it can feel really random. And I think to a certain extent, it is. Part of it is it's such a fine line between fear and, and pleasure in some cases. You know, some people find that stomach falling away from you feeling of a roller coaster to be a thrill. And for you, it's it's horrible. And our emotions sort of operate so tightly that it can be hard to figure out part of the thrill is the sick feeling for the people that enjoy it. It's not that they experience it completely differently than you do. They just process it differently. We have fears, though, that, that are irrational. You know, there's the, the, the fear, well, maybe they're not all irrational, but like the fear of flying. The, it, people are very afraid of flying, and yet the chances of anything happening are so slim and much slimmer than if you were in a car. Whereas, you know, the, the, the fear of your stomach dropping in a roller coaster, that's a real thing that happens to you, and that's what I do my, <laughs> my best to avoid. But the fear of flying is... is well, I guess if the plane does fall from the sky, that's a real problem. But, but it, it seems like an unnecessary, an odd fear because there's really not much to be afraid of. Right. There's category errors that we make sometimes in terms of like, yes, something could be dangerous in theory, but the risk assessment piece is missing. I give the example of, of being afraid of bears. You know, if you're lying awake in your tent at night in a campground in bear country, it's probably reasonable to worry a little bit about bears. It's very reasonable to worry about a bear if you see a bear. Um, but it's less reasonable to worry about bears if you're lying awake in your tent at night and you're not in bear country. So it's, it's so hard to, to parse, you know, what's a real threat and what isn't. And that's, that's really what the process is um, that happens in our brains and our bodies is, is us trying to sort of parse the threat level. And, and we're not that good at it, it turns out, which explains, um, you know, stuff like the reaction to, to airplanes versus cars. We should all be scared to get in cars every day, but we aren't. Yeah, well, see, I never thought of it that way, but really our, our ability to assess risk sucks. I mean, we're not very good at it. <laughs> yeah, most of us are not that good at it. We, we err on the side of, of either being oblivious to certain risks or, or too worried about things that aren't that risky. The, I, I came across a researcher who did some really interesting research into the question. She framed her research question as, um, who would make the best Navy SEAL? And she thought it would be you know, the bravest, the most impervious to fear, the, the people who can soldier through when they're terrified. But it, 
it turns out the best Navy SEAL is someone who can accurately assess the threat level that they're facing and not overreact and not underreact. She made a really important distinction between, you know, being brave and being reckless. So what is it when people say, for example, they're afraid of spiders? Are they really afraid of spiders? Is it fear or are they just grossed out by spiders? Because being grossed out is not the same as being afraid. Mm -hmm. Fear and disgust uh, do share a lot in common as well. They're often sort of studied in relation to each other. I think what a person is saying when they're saying they're afraid of spiders isn't that they have a rational thought process. It's what they're expressing is that they have that physical reaction. They see a spider and despite their understanding that they're perfectly safe around, you know, a harmless house spider, they have that physical fear reaction. Their body triggers their threat response and they can't control it. And it's very unpleasant. So it's not just grossed out exactly. It, it is a fear response, but it's not one that's grounded in any true sense of threat. It's an, it's an irrational reaction. And uh, it's one that a lot of people struggle with. And and you say fear and disgust are are closely associated. So is fear and anxiety. What's the difference? They're really hard to separate. The classic distinction is that fear is a response to an objective threat, a clear and present danger. And anxiety is about responding to a hypothetical or a perceived or a potential threat. But that gets really messy. I read a book that gave the example of a clear and present threat to be, you know, a terrorist or the nuclear bomb. But but those are specters that produce all sorts of anxiety in people who aren't currently facing either one, too. You know, the people had decades of anxiety about the bomb, even if it was never likely to be dropped on them. So I think it's a really difficult thing to to, to separate. Again, coming back to our sort of <laughs> not ideal threat assessment skills, uh, it's so hard to separate clear and present danger from potential danger. And so, as you said, we're not particularly good at assessing risk but uh, or fear, but when we feel fear, are we pretty good at handling it? It doesn't seem, <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. <laughs> I think we can be. It, um, my experience, ultimately the conclusion that I came to, I don't know if there's a way to sort of train ourselves to respond better But what I found ultimately sort of distinguished my true fear experiences from my anxiety experiences is that when I, when I was facing a real threat, I, I, I was sort of driven to respond, um, in a really sort of clear, sharp edged kind of way. Like my brain got focused and, and when I was sort of mired in anxiety, I felt fuzzy And that was the closest I could come to a useful distinction between, you know, when to listen and when to ignore is, is sort of fuzzy fear versus sharp fear. And I know that's, that's quite mushy. (laughs) It's not exactly scientific, but I do think we can, we can learn to listen to our instincts. I think sometimes we try to explain away our fear and say, oh, it's nothing, it's nothing because, because it's embarrassing to be afraid, you know, you don't want to be seen to be overreacting. But I think it's worth thinking about listening to the, to our our bodies when when they do react and and trying to say is this something i should listen to or is this my body leading me astray i want to hear a little bit more about your experience i'm speaking with eva holland she is a writer and author of the book nerve adventures in the science of fear 
As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, Something you should know? I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Eva, talk a a bit about your experiences with fear that led you to write the book and and get more involved in this. I had a severe, reasonably severe fear of heights uh, for many years, but I didn't really recognize it as a pattern. I know that sounds sort of silly, but I would have these, what I later understood to be panic attacks in heights situations, but they were so specific. I was fine on airplanes. I was fine in elevators or on bridges, generally fine on balconies. It was if I felt like I could fall. And it took me a long time to understand that. It was as much a fear of falling as a fear of heights. And so if I was on a, you know, a steep hiking trail or maybe a balcony with kind of a flimsy railing, Anything where, however unreasonably, I felt like I could sort of tumble to my death, I would, I would be able, unable to breathe. I would be sort of, you know, gasping for breath and, and, and picturing my own doom over and over again, sort of full, full panic mode. But it only happened every few years because I knew I didn't like the feeling. Like you, I, like you avoiding roller coasters, I would avoid, you know, steep hills or the monkey bars or this sort of thing, ladders. And, and so I didn't put the pieces together for a long time. And it was only really when I started working on this project that I sort of understood what had been happening to me this whole time. Um, and that was interesting to, to realize that you could have, you know, something resembling a phobia your whole life and not even really realize it because we're so good at, at starting to avoid the things that we fear that sometimes we can miss the pattern. But it seems to me... Like, as I said, I, I have this fear of roller coasters. I have no desire to fix that. There's no motivation for me to want to do that. I'm just fine standing here while everybody else is flying around in circles because it's, an, it's not a fear that gets in my way particularly, although sometimes people call me chicken or whatever. But uh, you know what I mean? Like, the, a lot of fears I'm fine with. I, I don't need to fix that. I think a lot of fears are fine the way they are. We don't need to, you know, it's a lot of work and it, it can be painful to try to undo these patterns. And I don't think anybody's obliged to do it just on principle. The reason why I decided I wanted to fix my fear of heights is because what it was costing me was more than what I wanted to give up. It, specifically, I had moved to a mountain community. I had developed this real love of the wilderness, hiking. I was working, you know, in extreme sports and outdoor adventure uh, in my writing and all my friends were, you know, mountain biking and hiking and climbing all the time. And I just, I just didn't want to be unable to go along. I wrote about a woman in my book who was afraid of mice. And if, if she only had her reaction when mice were actually around, you know, that would be more reasonable, but she was 
terrified of mice all the time in her own home, you know, mouse free. She couldn't walk around barefoot. She was just completely paranoid about mice being, you know, in her shoes or on her feet or, um, and so that felt like too much to her. I think it was sort of ruining her life. You know, it was ruining her night's sleep every night, um, thinking about the mice running around. And so people have to make an assessment if they're going to try to do this work to unravel a phobia, for instance, um, what is it costing you? And, and is that more than you're willing to pay? You know, it seems that the mice example is a good example of this, that like the older we get, the harder it becomes to change. That that if, if that woman had been introduced to mice when she was two years old, three years old, and hadn't had these preconceived notions of how horrible they were, she may have never uh, developed that fear because she'd been around them. But, be, but because something else happened and she probably wasn't around them, that in her mind, she created this fear of them. Mm-hmm. She was an interesting case because she saw her mom freak out about a mouse running across her bare feet when she was a kid. She was a kid. She wasn't predisposed to be freaked out by this mouse running across her bare feet, but her mom, you know, screamed. And, and, and so she internalized that this is something to be terrified of. And we can, we can pass on our anxieties and fears to our children in that way, which is, you know, one more thing for parents to worry about. Um, I know that's not what anybody needs, but um, uh, it, it can be something that you sort of absorb from the reactions of people around you as well. Yeah, yeah, that's probably really true. Because it's, it, it does seem like, I can imagine if you're a little kid and, and you see your parents who you, you know, they're your protectors and you see them freaked out by something, then that, that, that must be a real thing to be afraid of. Right. Yeah. That must be really scary if, if, if you're scared of it. Yeah. What are the, uh, aren't, aren't there some natural fears that humans have? We're, like we're afraid of falling or aren't there some just fears we're all programmed to be afraid of? Yeah. There's some that are sort of deep, deep, you know, laid into us through evolution. I think some of the classics are, you know, heights, the dark, really cramped small spaces and things like snakes or spiders. These are the things that would have would have killed us thousands of years ago. Now it's, you know, cars and cancer. But in the old days, it was it was, you know, going too deep into the wrong cave or 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 a snake or or that sort of thing. And so those are some of the the harder ones to shed because they're just encoded within us in a way. And if you have a fear that you really, it is in your way, you're afraid of mice or you're afraid of whatever it is and you would like to not be, is there any sort of like one size fits all kind of approach to fixing that? There's not a one size fits all, but there are a lot of different ways to, to tackle it. I tried three different therapies. Um, one was a, you know, a drug treatment. One was a, a kind of a classic exposure therapy, sort of gradual immersion. And, and one was uh, a more trauma-based therapy called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So there's, there's a lot of options out there. Some of them are more DIY. You know, I was able to go out and buy a, buy a book on how to do exposure therapy myself. But there's, there's a lot of knowledge in the, in the medical community too about how to tackle these things. And it can it can seem sort of embarrassing or, or not like a big enough deal to, to say, oh, I don't need, you know, therapy for this. But there are options to sort of work through these things and different treatments will have different effectiveness for different people, which can be hard and frustrating. 
But uh, I do think it's worth looking into, you know, if you're feeling like your fear is is constraining you and making your life smaller than you want it to be, I do think there are, there are options available and it's worth looking into what might work for you. It seems often that people's fears get wrapped up in their identity. You know, Aunt Mabel doesn't like spiders, so make sure there's no spiders around. And Uncle Fred is afraid of flying, so whenever it's time to go somewhere, you know Fred's going to take the car, he's never going to get on a plane. And there's no discussion about it because because Fred's fear of flying is part of who he is. And in some ways, it feels like either it, it isn't very changeable or it isn't something they want to change. And so how changeable is it? I mean, is it part of who people are or are fears, if you're really willing to take a shot at it, you can probably do something about it? It's way more changeable than I realized. I, to be totally honest, you know, I expected to be writing kind of a, a mushy epilogue to my book where I said, well, I didn't change my fears at all, but I sure learned a lot of science along the way, you know? That was what I expected to be ending my book with. And I and my life was completely transformed by the work I did, if I'm, you know, not being too dramatic to say that. I my fear of heights felt like it was a, a built-in part of me as much as my spine. And and it's different now. It's not gone, but it's it's different. And I think it's worth keeping in mind that this stuff can feel permanent, and it isn't permanent. Well, everybody's afraid of something sometime, and it's interesting to understand how it works, and and that that, that there's help if, if it's getting in the way. Eva Holland has been my guest. She is a writer, and the name of her book is Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Eva. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Fantastic. Thanks so much. You probably don't think about this a lot, but when you talk with someone, or in a small group, or to a large group, there's a lot going on. Your message, what you are conveying to people, is coming through the words you say, how you say them, how you gesture, your facial expressions, even the way you do or don't tilt your head. All of those things and more make up your message. Some people do this all very well, and it looks almost effortless, But almost all of us could improve some of our communication skills by doing a few things differently. And the person who really understands this is David J.P. Phillips. He spent seven years studying 5,000 speakers to discover the skills that made great communicators so great. He's done TED Talks on the subject, and he has other videos, and he has courses to help people become better communicators. His website is davidjpphillips.com. And he joins me to discuss how all of us can be better communicators in all situations. Hi, David. Welcome. Thank you. I would guess that most people think of themselves as pretty good communicators. I mean, they, they get through the day, they talk with people, they ask questions, they answer questions, they have conversations. It all seems to work out okay. Do you not think people are pretty decent communicators? I'd say no. A lot of people are fluent in their native language, but they're not fluent in communication. Far from it often. Because they're doing or not doing what? What is it that's causing them not to be good communicators? As you know, I studied 5,000 speakers for seven years to find 110 common skills we all use when we communicate. And the average person makes use of about 30 of them. 
which means that it invites loads of misunderstandings and unclarity in the presentation or communication that they do. So what do you think is one of the most important things people miss that could really make their communication better if they, if they did it? What, what could they do? Well, I'd say that one thing that you do as well is pace changes, where you use your base pace is fairly slow, which means that you signal importance in what you say. Our brain believes that when people say things quickly, we believe that what is being said is of less value because the, people, the person wants to hurry past it. It devalues what you're saying. And being able to, in a presentation, go from really slow to being a lot quicker when you speak through passages just creates that variation that people need. I usually say this, hey, you as a communicator and presenter, you the conductor, you tell the person in the audience what they're supposed to listen to through your voice. Well, and also along, along those same lines is, is the power of, I think, the pause is that when people who just talk a mile an hour and go to, but mm-hmm. if, if you're talking and you stop talking, even people okay. who are looking down at their phones will look up to see why you stop talking and you get their attention back. Hey, that's poetry, man. That is poetry. I love it. That's one of my favorites. And, Definitely. And, and yet people are afraid to pause, I think, because they think they'll lose the audience when it, it actually has, I think, the opposite effect much of the time. Oh, yeah. The absolute opposite. That's the conundrum here. Because when you're an amateur, you hate pausing because it puts you in the center. But when you're a prof- professional, you love them. You're like, you've got 5,000 people in front of you and you launch a pause and you look at every single pair of eyes in there and you absorb their energy and and then... You launch into the world, world of the number. It's, it's beautiful. Let's talk about one communication problem that, that I'm very aware of. I hear it a lot when I interview people for this podcast, and that's filler words. Things like, um, ah, uh, you know, because I, I have to edit out some of them because people, there are some people who use them so much that it really it gets in the way of their message, saying, um, ah, uh, or, you know. Or there are other ones too, right? Uh, yeah, uh, 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 super common, super common. And we commonly use them when we don't know what we're going to say, lose train of thought, or when we lie. So it's usually not a good thing to have in your language. And my guess is, and my experience is, that people don't really know that they use filler words like um and ah, uh, or, or at least they don't know they do it as much as they do it. Well, I've been coaching Michael for 20 years, and I'd say that 99.9% don't know about them. And even if you tell them that they do them, they don't know. So you have to make them aware of that they have them before you can actually remove them through coaching. They're so unaware of it. And how do you get people to stop it? I have figured out that the most efficient method that I've ever found was that your brain finds it easier to switch from one behavior to a different behavior, like stop smoking, start chewing gum. And the same thing goes for here. Stopping doing filler sounds is difficult, but exchanging it for something else is easier. So the trick is to, as soon as the filler sound comes, you do a breathe in, an inhale, and it shouldn't be audible. It shouldn't go, <gasps> but instead a small, silent breathe in. And when you, when you do that, instead of just stopping, you remove it much, much easier and faster. 
So demonstrate for me the, the before and after. Oh, well, you can't actually then hear it. If I were to say, hey, uh, Michael, it would, still, it would be an inhale instead. So, hey, Michael, how are you doing? Well, I, I have certainly noticed people who say, um, ah, uh, you know, a lot, because often when I'm interviewing people, they say it. I, I remember, I think it was, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago, I actually counted, and in a, basically in a 20-minute segment, this person said, um, ah, uh, or you know, I can't remember the exact number now, but it was hundreds of times. So I, I agree with you. I think it's really important that people try to be more aware of that because it, it does seem to muddy the message when you're umming and eyeing and you knowing all the time. Let's talk about gestures. Uh, they seem to be important not only in, in public speaking, but even when you're talking to people in a small group or one-on-one. Gestures mean a lot, and yet we don't think too much about them. They just sort of happen. Far, far, far longer before we got the spoken word, we used gestures to communicate with each other. And it's so ingrained in us. I, I do this demonstration on my, in my TED Talk where I use the opposite gestures to what I'm saying. And it just blows people's minds because they can't hear what I'm saying. They can just see my gestures. Describe as best you can, since we can't see it, what you mean by your message is saying one thing and your gestures are doing the opposite. So, yeah, imagine if I speak to you and I say, hey, Michael, I'd like to invite you to a party. And at the same time, I am doing thumbs down and I'm showing my entire palm is showing stop, stop, don't come. I do loads of those kind of gestures at the same time as I'm inviting you to the party. And there is no way that the message coming across to you will be positive because the gestures say the opposite. What I found absolutely fascinating after doing this for so long was that I found something called synchronicity, which has to do with this. And it goes like this, that when your gestures, your body language, your face, your voice, and your words all say exactly the same thing, then we love the person. There is no discrepancy. But you know the feeling when you walk into a room and you get this gut feeling like something is off with the person. I can promise you to 100% that one of these five layers are out of sync with that person when they communicate. And that creates so much misunderstanding. So what's the advice then with gestures? What, what generally is the thing to do? The, I'd say that when you've prepared your presentation and you're, um, you're ready to go, or let's say you've pre prepared your presentation, your slides, your structure, your script, then you add gestures. That's kind of the, one of the last things that you do. And what you then add is these five different gestures. You use signs, so any kind of sign language or signs with your hand that can show like thumbs up, for instance. You add what is called imaginary props. So imaginary props could be like, so I called my wife, and then you pick up a phone and you pretend that you're holding a phone with your fingers. And then you have drawings, so you draw midair, whatever you're talking about. And then number four is progression. So for instance, Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4, and you show that with your hand as you progress through each of these. And then the fifth one is effect, which means that, ooh, that gave me goosebumps. These are the five main kind of categories for gestures, which you then apply to your presentation. Talk about facial gestures, facial expressions, and, and the importance of them and how to do it. 
So you have about 40 different muscle combination in your face, which can produce approximately 5,000 nuances of facial expressions. It's only maybe one in 20 that has that naturally. 19 of us actually need to practice facial expressions. Otherwise, we're, we're missing out on like the main way of communicating through video. So people are communicating through Zoom and Team and Skype at the moment, and their face is dead on in center. But 19 out of 20 aren't using the primary communication skill in that case. Another thing I notice is people's volume, because loudness, volume, sends a message. If you talk loud, you're saying something. And if you talk soft, that says something. What's, what's exciting with volume and the volume that you speak in is that it is directly correlated to your own perceived confidence. So if I meet a person who isn't confident or they're nervous and I ask them to increase their volume by 20%, something mind-blowing happens. And that is that just by increasing your volume by 20%, it affects about 15 of the other skills. And it makes the person more confident. So immediately when you increase your volume by 20%, you can see the person straightening their spine. They stand, stand more stable. Their head becomes straight instead of angled. Their emphasis become better and stronger and so on and so forth. So that's a pretty cool one. So anybody who feels less confident can increase their volume by 20% if they're not already screaming, of course. When we think about speakers, uh, speakers speak, but, but what other uh, tactics, strategies, tricks can people use or do you use that, that kind of spice up whatever it is you're saying? I love using sound effects. Stand-up comedians usually do it. I'm not a stand-up comedian, but I love doing things like when I show a chart in PowerPoint, I go, or I go, and then you go to your computer and you go and using sound effects really really makes your entire experience as a speaker it just it's just more fun and uh, it's more entertaining and it definitely comes through in a better way so that's one of my favorites and the second one i wanted to mention which could be inspiring to to some as well is self-laughter and that is that just before you say something that should be perceived as funny, you go, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you this one, Michael. And then you launch into it. And that little self-laughter increases the anticipation of laughter. And it makes people more inclined to laugh at what you're going to say. So it's a cool little trick that you can use as well. I know you talk about, and you're one of the few people that I've heard actually discuss it specifically as a topic, and that's the melody of your voice and the importance of changing the melody. Uh, so talk about that and, and explain what you mean by melody. But it means that you have a standard melody, so you speak in a particular melody. But then it's important that you sometimes go into a different melody to say that this is important. And perhaps we could have a look at these different things because they could be of importance to you. You see, melody when changed, creates focus and contrast and meaning. And people who are good at shifting melody can spellbind people. It's just, again, one of many skills, but it's a pretty cool one to use as well. And I just want to summarize it saying this as well. We've been talking about public speaking and on stage, Michael, but every single one of these 
can be used in real life. Every single one. You know, when you go to a dinner and you're having a conversation using self-laughter or using facial expressions, phew, make a heck of a difference. Even in your relationship, why do you think there's so, much, so many misunderstandings so easily? I think the major misunderstanding is because the, the way you say it does not correspond to how you say it, the words that you use. So the synchronicity is off. I know body language is certainly important when you speak, and, and someone once pointed out to me that you'll, you'll never see like a professional speaker up on a stage with their arms crossed, because that sends a message to the audience. But often you'll see people talking with each other, or in, even in small groups, with their arms crossed. It's probably one of the most common ones, you know, that we cross our arms. And the thing is, when you cross your arms, is that you then leave the evaluation of why you crossed your arms to the person that you're speaking to. So the other person on the other side now has to figure out why did you cross your arms? And they do that consciously or subconsciously. And they might came to the con- come to the conclusion that you're bored or that you're negative or that you don't want to listen. But it could actually mean that you were just cold or you just anatomically you wanted to move position. So you can't read too much into those body languages if you don't combine them with micro expressions and facial expressions so that you can like measure all the layers at the same time. But the point of this is that you are responsible for what you send out. So as a speaker, no, you can't cross your arms. As a speaker, you've got to be aware of what you do with your arms because they're constantly sending a message. And the clearer that message is, the less the audience has to think, does he mean this? Does it mean that? I know one of your skills, you talk about the head tilt. And I like that one. So, so explain what you mean by tilting your head. Well, it goes like this, that when a person, when I, if I were to see you now, Michael, and you would tilt your head slightly to the right or the left, doesn't matter, that would signal a higher level of active listening. That would then make me more confident in how I can speak to you and how much I can speak to you. So the tilt of the head signals active listening skills. Now, I've met so many people that I've coached who don't have it. They've never picked it up. So then I say to them, hey, try tilting your head just slightly to the left or the right the next time you want a person to speak to you. And they come back to me and they say, hey, I'm blown away. How can this be so powerful? And the interesting thing with good listeners is that they're more likable. So people like good listeners because there's nothing that people love more than speaking about themselves. And if they've got somebody listening actively to that, they love that person. So tilting your head and nodding your head, if you combine those two, well done. Well, and I think it's worth repeating that, yes, these skills they may sound as if they're for professional speakers speaking to a group on a stage kind of thing, but all of these skills can be used in one-on-one communication or in small groups, any any situation where you want to come across as a better speaker. My guest has been David J.P. Phillips. He is a communications expert. He spent seven years studying 5,000 speakers to discover what makes a great communicator. He has a TED Talk on this, and I'll put a link to the TED Talk in the show notes for this episode. He also has a website where you can learn more about his work. The website is davidjpphillips.com, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks, David. 
I'm sure you have found yourself in a phantom traffic jam. You know, when traffic comes to a stop for no reason. I, I've often sat at a complete standstill on an interstate highway and wondered, how can this be? How does traffic on a multi-lane highway come to a complete stop? Well, it turns out it's because someone up ahead of you slowed down, and then the car behind him or her slowed down, and then the next car behind them slowed down, and it moves backwards in a wave until actually somebody has to stop. Usually me, it seems. And there is this professor at MIT who has been researching this, and according to him, a big part of the problem is tailgating. In fact, if we all did something called bilateral control, that is, we increase the distance between us and the car in front so that you have the same amount of space between you and the car in front of you and you and the car behind you, that would reduce phantom traffic jams a lot because that extra space would take up the slack when people slowed down, so you didn't have to slam your brakes on, and then the guy behind you slams his brakes on, and back it goes. This professor says that under reasonable conditions today, you can get 1,800 cars per lane per hour to pass by a certain point on a highway. With bilateral control, you could almost double that, and you might save at least some of the $121 billion a year that traffic congestion costs the U.S. economy. And that is something you should know. Often at this point in the podcast, I ask you to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because it helps us. And someone said, well, so how does it help? How could that possibly help? Well, the way it was explained to me is that Apple has this algorithm that uses the velocity, the volume, and the quality of the ratings and reviews to approximate how good a podcast is, how good a quality podcast it is, and how that algorithm treats your podcast will help determine where it shows up in the rankings on Apple Podcasts. So a great way to support this podcast is to add your review to the volume, velocity, and quality of the ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.